Hopefully you all have your handouts for today. You'll see that we're going to continue going through uh, Jesus' model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. In our previous study of the passage, I, I presented last week an overview of the Lord's Prayer where we got a sense of what the whole prayer taken together is supposed to be about. Uh, and we considered some lessons we could learn from the context and the overall structure of the prayer uh, last week. And this week we're going to start with a closer look at the prayer over the next quite a few weeks probably. Uh, we're going to take each part of the prayer and look at it, the opening address today and then each of the petitions and the prayer um, in order to try to help ourselves not to commit one of the sins, if you will, uh, that we spoke of last week. And then is that we, we've gotten so used to the prayer, we say the prayer, we don't actually pray the prayer. Um, and so the goal of this study is to make us think about each part of this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, why it's important that he wants us to pray these things. And so we'll be taking in other scriptures along the way uh, to help inform us on that as well. So that when we utilize this prayer, hopefully we'll do it in a more thoughtful way. Well, before we get into it, as always, I feel the great need to pray. Because we, we can't teach the word, and I can't and you can't be a good hearer of it without dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Holy Father, uh, we come recognizing, as always, that we cannot understand your word as we should, let alone proclaim it faithfully uh, without the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, illuminating our minds, opening our eyes, giving us ears to hear. And so we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit this morning anew and enable us to grasp what it is that you intend us to learn through the scriptures today. Help us to hear your voice through your word today. And if there are any here who do not know you, we pray that you would do for them what you've already done for us who do know you, that you would open their eyes that they may see and enter the kingdom, that they may see Jesus for who he really is and bow the knee to him as Lord and Savior, trusting in him alone through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his sinless life, Trusting in him alone to save them. And accepting the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life from him. We'll give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers. Convinced more and more each day in every way that you alone deserve all the glory for anything good in this world or in us. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We sometimes, or some of us often, maybe not so much with recent generations, but uh, we'll speak to others or address them in ways that demonstrate a certain respect for them, depending on their role in our lives. For example, when I was uh, in the U.S. Navy, some of my fellow ex-military guys today here uh, can attest to this. Uh, 
I and my fellow sailors were always required to address officers as sir. Um, it was a title of respect, uh, even though sometimes uh, we found it was somewhat difficult uh, to address some officers as sir um, if they weren't very easy to respect uh, because of their actions or attitudes. Uh, a similar example of using certain forms of address as a matter of respect would be the way that most parents expect their children to address them, and so they don't allow them to call them by their first names, most parents. Um, they don't think that such a familiar manner of address would properly express the kind of respect children should have for parents and their role as parents. Why do we do these sorts of things? Well, it's because the way we address someone often indicates what we think of that person. Or that, in the case of the military, the office that person may hold. So it is with the way we we address God. The way we speak to him indicates what we think of him. Whether we would like that or not, it works out that way. How we address him and what's in our hearts when we address him reflects what we think of him. And this is why I think it's appropriate for us to spend our time this morning focusing our attention upon how Jesus taught us to address God in prayer. I'm going to go through and read all of the Lord's Prayer with you, and then we'll focus just on that opening address, our Father in Heaven. But to get the prayer in our minds once again, we'll begin reading in verse 9 of Matthew, chapter 6. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Lord Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And last week, I pointed out how this Uh, indicates, along with a similar prayer that we saw in Luke, indicates that Jesus gave this prayer as a daily prayer. It's the kind of things we should be praying daily for, right? In other words, when we pray every day, we should be thinking of God as our Father in heaven, for example. Not just give us this day our daily bread. And he goes on to say, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we saw last week that means Jesus expects that we need to be forgiven every day. And we need to be forgiving every day. Um, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Every day is going to be a spiritual battle, right? And we need God's help. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so we've seen just by rehearsing this, there's a lot to cover in the coming weeks. But we're going to focus here on just that opening address, as I said, where Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. And there are three observations to be made about this opening address. And it's just by emphasizing each part of it that I want to make the points. First of all, that God is our Father. That's very important. Secondly, that God is our Father. He's not just my Father. He's your Father, right? He's our Father. And thirdly, that God is our Father in heaven. That has some importance for us as well that we often don't stop to think about. We're so used to saying it. We don't stop to think about what it means. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to stop and think about what each of these things really mean when we say them. Why it's important that we say them. So first of all, there's the fact that God is our Father. This is important to Jesus that we, re- we address God this way. Um, 
Now, calling God our Father in this way is definitely a new emphasis that came with Jesus' teaching. This wouldn't have been a common way of addressing God in prayer amongst the Jews of his day. Even though there's a concept of a fatherhood of God in the Old Testament, they didn't address him that way. This is something that Jesus sort of did and taught his disciples to do that would have been unique. D.A. Carson, I think, correctly notes that, quote, the fatherhood of God is not a central theme in the Old Testament. Where father does occur with respect to God, it is commonly by way of analogy, not direct address. Not till Jesus is a characteristic to address God as father. This can only be understood against the background of customary patterns for addressing God. The overwhelming tendency in Jewish circles was to multiply titles ascribing sovereignty, lordship, glory, grace, and the like to God. Against such a background, Jesus' habit of dressing God as his own father and teaching his disciples to do the same could only appear familiar and presumptuous to opponents, personal and gracious to followers. I think he's given us a good assessment here of the sort of newness of the way Jesus addressed God as Father. He brought a new emphasis upon God as Father, but it's also noteworthy that he did so using a particular word for Father that stressed the intimacy of our relationship with him, that typically Jesus would use this word Abba, even though here he uses the Greek pater. Um, We'll see more on that as we move along. As the Net Bible notes observe, God is addressed in terms of intimacy, Father. The original Semitic term here was probably Abba, The term is a little unusual in personal prayer, especially as it lacks qualification. It is, it is not, excuse me, it is not the exact equivalent of our word daddy, as is sometimes popularly suggested. But it does suggest a close familial relationship. There's some overlap between this word meme and the way we use the word daddy, but they're not synonymous. People weren't that familiar with their dads in those days. Um, the ESV Study Bible notes, I think, which you might have this quote for you in your, in your notes I handed out, I believe, similarly observes this. Father would have been Abba in Aramaic, the everyday language spoken by Jesus. It was the word used by Jewish children for their earthly fathers. However, since the term in both Aramaic and Greek was also used by adults to address their fathers, the claim that Abba meant daddy is misleading and runs the risk of irreverence. Both of these sources want to get away from this. You see it in some popular books and stuff that Abba means daddy, and it really doesn't. They're, like I said, you can't just make a one-to-one correspondence there. Um, now, I think Jesus actually originally gave the Sermon on the Mount in Greek. And I think he used the word pater there as we have it in our Greek text. I think the assumption that a lot of commentators make perhaps not most these days, but a lot of them have made this. Jesus regularly taught just in Aramaic and that everything we have in the Gospels is a translation from the Aramaic. We know sometimes he spoke Aramaic or maybe frequently he spoke Aramaic. But I think he largely spoke and taught in Greek and that's why we have that in the New Testament. I think most of the people knew Greek well. It was the lingua franca of the day. It was the language of doing business everywhere and people understood it. And of course, Jesus was going to speak in a language most people around him, would clearly understand. 
And I think he did that, and I think we have that reflected for us here. So I'm not, I'm not buying into the idea that Jesus actually said Abba on this occasion. But I am saying that he regularly used that term in praying, and that what he meant by pater, father, is the same thing for him. I will argue that. Um, we know that Jesus used this term as an address to God, uh, and when he spoke and prayed in Aramaic in particular, we know this, for example, from Mark, chapter 14, where we read, Then they came to a place that was called Gethsemane, and this is Mark 14, uh, 32, And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and they began to be troubled, and he, rather, began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. Now here he's using the Aramaic and the Greek. He said, Abba, Pater. All things are possible for you. And I'm arguing that these two terms are equivalent for Jesus in the way he uses them. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. So, even though I'm saying that Jesus used the Greek word, I'm saying he meant by that Greek word what he would have meant by the word Abba as well. That it takes that force for him. And then it should for us as well. When we use the word Father, we should mean, when we use the word Father in address to God, what Jesus meant when he spoke of Abba, Father. That's what we should mean. That's why I'm getting into all this. I'm trying to look at how Jesus spoke and what he meant when he used this term so that we can understand what he wants us to mean when we use it. And, of course, the apostles taught us to use this term and think this way, following after Jesus. For example, Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 8, verses 14 through 16, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The exact same thing that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. We say. Paul didn't say Abba, Father, uh, just on his own here. I think he's reflecting Jesus' usage. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. The point here is that we get to address God as our Father in the same way that our Lord Jesus did. When he cried out to God in Gethsemane, he cried out, Abba, Father. And Paul says we cry out the same thing. And whenever we do that, it's because the Spirit is working in us. We get to do this because we've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ to be God's children. And so we get to address him as joint heirs with Christ the way our Lord Jesus addressed him. This is what Paul was referring to when he wrote of the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So our Lord Jesus, who is God's son by nature, right, 
has made it possible that we may become sons of God by adoption and thus be heirs together with him. And as heirs together with him, we get to address God the way that he did. And when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he's already teaching this idea. You address God the way I address God. Father. Now, he hadn't yet spelled out to him all the theology behind that. right? We get to read that because we know what he taught the apostles and what they went on to teach. For example, Paul also said, A similar thing in Galatians, in Galatians 4, verses 5 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. When we cry out, Abba, Father, to God, as Jesus did, it's because the Spirit of Christ is in us, leading us to have that relationship with God. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, he says, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I think John Chrysostom, writing in the late 4th century, was correct when he said of this address by our Lord Jesus, and this quote might also be in your notes, See how he straightway stirred up the hearer and reminded him of all God's bounty in the beginning. He's talking about in the way we start our prayers, like calling God Father. For he who calls God Father, by him both remission of sins and taking away of punishment and righteousness and sanctification and redemption and adoption and inheritance and brotherhood with the only begotten and the supply of the Spirit are acknowledged in this single title. See, what John Chrysostom was doing is what we've been doing this morning. He was looking at the other places in Scripture that speak of this and seeing how rich a term this is, what it really brings with it. When we call God Father, all of this is behind us calling God Father, he's saying. And he's right. He says, for one cannot call God Father without having attained to all those blessings. And that's the truth. There's an old story from the mission field in India that may help to further stress how crucial it is that we actually understand that God is our Father. It's been told that a missionary was teaching a Hindu woman the Lord's Prayer. And when he got to the end of the first clause, Our Father which art in heaven, she stopped him. And she said, If God is our Father, that is enough. There's nothing now to fear. Well, she had a lot to learn yet, but she was already on the right track. Because that's what Paul said, right? We we don't have a spirit of bondage to fear. We have a spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When we feel this strong uh, desire to call out to God as our Father and to love him as, as his children, it's evidence that we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and that we truly are his children by adoption. Now, anybody can say these words, right? But when you pray these words and you mean these words, you understand these words, that's the work of the Spirit in your heart. Sometimes we may struggle to obey the Father's will and to follow the Spirit's leading, but if we still possess a deep desire in our hearts to call out to God as our, our dear Father in Christ, then that's the Spirit's witness to us that casts out fear. You know, I've talked to people who are struggling with assurance of salvation and because they've maybe fallen into some besetting sin or 
God has kind of pulled back his reinsurance a little bit as a, dip, a disciplinary measure maybe. <laughs> and they're struggling. And they're saying, I'm worried I'm not even a Christian. And, and I remember one, one guy that I talked to repeatedly about this. I said, well, then maybe you should just quit praying. Maybe you should just give it up then. Not meaning for him to do that, mind you. He said, well, I can't do that. I said, why not? Well, I can't. Why not? Well, I don't know. Well, I know. You can't because you have the Spirit of Christ in you. And you have to keep going back to God as your Father. You can't help yourself. So in the midst of all your doubt, you cannot quit believing. You cannot quit calling out to him. Why? Because the Spirit's working in you. And the very reason you're going through this trial is so that you can see that. Because you never see God more clearly than when you come to the end of yourself. And that guy had come to his limit. And he had seen that he couldn't have a faith in himself and of himself. That if he was going to trust in God, it had to be the Spirit's work in him. And I was pointing out to him, because of this trial, you're seeing the Spirit's work in you. Why can't you, in the midst of your doubt, quit believing? Quit calling out to God as your Father. Crying out, Abba, Father. Why can't? Why? It's because the Spirit of God is working in you. That's why. And then he started to get reassured. See, he needed to see the difference between what he could fake and what could only be done by the Spirit in his life. And that's what Paul, the kind of thing he has in mind when he says these things to us. We call out to God with sincerity, Abba, Father, through all of our trials. Why? Even when we doubt, why do we do that? Because the Spirit of God is sustaining us, that's why. Because we're God's children, and we can't help it. We have to call out to him as our Father. What else are we going to do? Like Peter said to Jesus when the so many people left. He said, are you going to leave as well? And he says, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Sometimes all that we have to hang on to is the fact that we can't quit hanging on. And that's God's work in us. Through the spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. As Jesus taught us to do through his example, and through this a prayer. So this is the Spirit's witness to us that we are heirs of God the Father and that a great inheritance awaits us in heaven, as Paul teaches. And these are important ways in which the Holy Spirit brings us comfort in all of our trials. Now, the fact that God is our Father and that we may address him as our Father also reminds us of his great love for us, as the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Every time we address God as our Father, we should be remembering just how much he loves us. That we get to call him Father. We get to be his children. And of course, because God thus loves us as a father, his love for us precedes our love for him. Um, I know in my own life, when my children were born, I already loved them. Right? And their love for me has always been a response then to my love for them. They never loved me first. (laughs) 
The same is true of our relationship with our Creator, our Heavenly Father. Again, the Apostle John stresses in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Now, getting back to the use of the term Abba, I've already stated my agreement with the Net Bible translators that the word that Jesus would have commonly used, even if he also taught in Greek, uh, and thus used the word pater as, as in this passage, um, I agree with that, that he would have commonly used the term, and that he would have meant, I would say, when he used the word pater, the same thing he meant when he used the word Abba. But I also agree that our word daddy may be a bit too familiar a term to adequately capture the nuance of this idea in the Greek or the Aramaic word Abba, even if it is similar uh, in the terms of the kind of affection, right, that it denotes. You see, it, it does communicate the kind of affection that our word daddy denotes, but it also carries with a note of great respect that may sometimes be lost in our use of the word daddy. And that's why I said earlier, I don't think they're equivalents. So we're to remember that we can and should approach God just as a little child affectionately approaches his father when he calls him daddy, but we're also never to forget that he is a holy father. Not just like any other father. He's the transcendent God of the universe we're calling father. Jesus also demonstrated that through his own example. When he prayed in John 17, 11, he said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, he said. Keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So when Jesus spoke of God as Abba, Father, he never forgot that he's speaking to the Holy Father. Maybe we should just bring the term Abba over into our praying, as Paul might have encouraged them to do, crying out, Abba, Father. Or maybe we just need to keep using the word Father and referring to God as Father, but, or, as Jesus did, calling him Holy Father, which is the way I've taken to praying. I typically address God as Holy Father, so I can remember that he's not just like any other father I'm speaking to. But we certainly need to have, when we speak of God as our Father, these nuances in mind. This kind of thinking in mind. It's the sovereign God of the universe we're addressing. And we get to call him Father. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. With that in mind, we're ready to move on to the second point. Not only is God our Father, but God is our Father. Now, when Jesus uh, says that we should address God as our Father and uses that plural pronoun, he's not just giving us a model for corporate praying, right? Um, He's also reminding us that we must always remember as we pray that we're part of a family. We saw this last week. There are first-person plural pronouns throughout this prayer. It's our and us throughout the prayer. He wants us to remember as we pray that we are part of a family, as I said, that includes many brothers and sisters in Christ, and they all address God as their father along with us. 
I think that's important. It, it teaches us that we must avoid both, both the rampant individualism and the selfishness of our culture in which one's own personal peace and affluence seem to have become the primary concern for most people. We must also remember that our relationship with God breaks down the barriers that we so often have with other people, including ethnic barriers. Everywhere in the world that Christians are taught to pray, our Father is a reminder to all of us that we're one family in Christ. Remember, in this regard, Paul's admonition to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 26 through 28, where he said, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither... Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he's saying there is that the kinds of things that create barriers in our culture and cause people to look down on other people, those are gone in Christ. We all have the same status of sonship in Christ. And the interesting thing here is, and as an aside that it's hard for me not to point out, because it's such an issue these days, is that in some modern translations, get away with this and they don't like to speak of adoption as sons and want to speak of us being children of God through Christ instead of sons. But in the first century, sonship, an heir had to be the son, right? But Paul says in this really countercultural way, women get sonship along with men. But Paul is saying in Christ, Women are elevated in a way that modern people who want to get rid of the sonship language are actually diminishing. They have, Paul's saying that women with you are joint heirs with Christ and have this status of sonship in Christ and, and, and are heirs as a result, just like men. Now, he still teaches role distinctions, right? Men are the head of the home. They're supposed to be pastors, not women and deacons and so forth. He still teaches role distinctions, but not because women are viewed as somehow less than. No, in Christ, they're equal heirs. This was totally countercultural in his day. And we should stress that to people who, who misunderstand us when we teach about men's and women's roles. We're not saying that women are inferior beings. No, they're God bearers, or image of God bearers, just like we are as men. We all equally share the image of God. And in Christ, we all share the same inheritance. But we have different roles to fulfill. When a policeman pulls me over to give me a ticket, thank God that hasn't happened in a long time. And I address him as sir and so forth. And he's authority over me. That doesn't mean I think he's better as a human being. He has a different role. I shouldn't have sped. But, <laughs> but remember also in this regard the vision of the Apostle Paul in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth the Bible just breaks down all these barriers and even race. And people today, I think our modern notion of race is bad anyway. I think from a Christian point of view, there's one race. It's the human race. We all come from Adam and Eve. 
and we don't know what they look like. Adam may have been a black man or a brown man, and Eve too, a brown or black woman, for all we know. We don't know what they look like. And what's more, we shouldn't care. We're all one race. That wasn't in my notes, but I just had to say it. Because in these, day, these days, people just make so much out of nothing. And it's so sad. As Christians, what do we care about? Fellow human beings created in the image of God. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all one human family. But in Christ, we're one spiritual family. And none of the distinctions that this fallen world cares so much about and tries to use to create these power dynamics that people talk about that make themselves more important than other people. We don't care about that. We care about the truth of who we are in Christ. And every time we pray to God as our Father, men and women, black, white, red, it doesn't matter. We should be remembering these things. He just doesn't care about that. We're all equally heirs in Christ. This last reference with its vision of our future in heaven, what it will be like, provides a good segue to our third and final point. And that is that God is our Father in heaven. And I think that this phrase reminds us of at least two things. First, we are reminded that God is transcendent. That is, that he exists far above all things. He's independent of all things. They depend on him, the existence of the entire universe. That This is what I referred to God as our Father in heaven should bring to mind. I think William Hendrickson is insightful here when he writes, Note also the combination of eminence and transcendence, of condescension and majesty. Our Father indicates his nearness. He is near to all his children, infinitely near. Therefore, with confidence, they approach the Father's throne to make all their wants and wishes known to him. That is, all those that are in harmony with his revealed will. They need not be afraid, for God is their Father who loves them. Yet, he is the Father in heaven, literally in the heavens. Therefore, he should be approached in the spirit of devout and humble reverence. Also, whereas the words our Father indicate God's willingness and eagerness to lend his ear to the praises and petitions of his children, the addition, who art in heaven, shows his power and sovereign right to answer their requests, disposing of them according to his infinite wisdom. There's some good application, I think, there the kinds of things we should think of when we think of our Father in heaven. And secondly, when we're just God is our Father in heaven, we're reminded that heaven is our real home. As the Apostle Paul declared in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just pilgrims on this earth. Our real home is heaven. We, we all have dual citizenship, right? We're citizens of whatever country we're in on this earth, but that's not our primary citizenship. Our primary citizenship is our heavenly citizenship. That takes, always takes precedence. In closing, then, I'd, I'd like to suggest a couple of additional points of application. 
because it seems to me that there are at least a couple of ways that Christians today may struggle with addressing God as Father. Hopefully, what we've seen already should help to lead you out of those struggles that you may have. But if not, a couple of other things to say. First, some may have allowed themselves to become too familiar in addressing God. They're so used to addressing God as Father that they've lost their sense of wonder that it is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, sovereign God of the universe whom they are addressing. And they've, they've forgotten all about that. William Hendrickson, again, is helpful where he writes that uh, the chumminess or easy familiarity that marks a certain type of present-day, quote-unquote, religion is definitely anti-scriptural. Those who indulge in this bad habit seem never to have read Exodus 3.5, where Moses fell on the ground, had to take his shoes off, right? Because he was on holy ground and he had to bow. Or Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, remember where Isaiah saw the throne of God high and lifted up, cried out, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. No chumminess there. (laughs) Or in Acts 4, 24, he says, and that's where the disciples praised God for his greatness, his creator of all things when they prayed. Or as D.A. Carson correctly notes again, Unfortunately, many modern Christians find it very difficult to delight in the privilege of of addressing the sovereign of the universe as father because they have lost the heritage that emphasizes God's transcendence. They've lost all sense of wonder at calling God father. They can't say with sincerity with the Apostle John, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should ever be called his children. That should blow our minds. And if it doesn't, then we've forgotten some things that Jesus, I think, would have us remember when we pray to our Father in heaven. On the other hand, some may struggle to call God their Father because they've been so disappointed by their earthly fathers. Some people have that problem. Many who have come from broken homes or have had abusive or unloving fathers may experience difficulty here with this with this thing of calling God Father. Father's become like a tainted word to them. So would Jesus say, well then don't call him Father then? I don't think so. I think Jesus would say, get your mind right. Listen to the truths I'm teaching you. Think of the Apostle Paul here. He'd remind us of all the things we read this morning that he taught and say, don't let your, your bad experience with an earthly father cause you to forget who your heavenly father really is. So the answer is truth permeating our souls. Now, in my own experience of having come from a broken home, I, I found it difficult as I grew up to believe that my own earthly father truly loved me. Seems to me there were lots of ways he made it pretty clear that he didn't. But since then, I've learned much about what the love of a father is by experiencing it in my own heart towards my own children. That certainly helped. But that wasn't the real clincher for me. It helped. What really made the difference for me 
was when I discovered my Heavenly Father's love for me in Christ. That changed everything for me. I can assure you that if we struggle to understand a father's love because we've never really experienced it from our earthly fathers, then we need to learn from our heavenly father what true love is really like. Then also see him as our model to emulate the love of our own children. But whatever our struggle Let us begin addressing it today by learning to properly call out to God in prayer as Jesus teaches us to do, as our Father in heaven. And when we do so, let's remember all that that means. How privileged we are in Christ to be a family together and to get to call out together to the God of the universe as our Father. We get to be His children. That's what we should be thinking of when we start praying in our opening address. Let's take a moment to close in prayer and then we'll move on to the Lord's Supper. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us that you, through Jesus Christ our Lord, have called us to be your children. We thank you that, though he existed in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he took upon himself the form of a human being. He came in the likeness of men. Through the virgin birth, he became incarnate as a man, and as one who was fully God and fully man in one person, in such a way that his deity neither added to nor took away from his humanity. His humanity neither added to nor took away from his deity, but in some mysterious, miraculous way, he was fully God and fully man in one person. And as such, he lived a sinless life and died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And he rose from the dead and conquered death on our behalf. And he has offered us the free gift of salvation if we'll leave off trusting in our own efforts and trust in him alone. Recognize that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in what he has done. And Lord, that he has ascended to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for all of us who put our faith in him.